I'm going to talk about the first path factor today, the first of eight path factors. And the first path factor is right view. Now, right view is ironic because it's the first path factor, but it's also the end of the Eightfold Path. You want to end up with right view after you've gone through the other seven. So you start and end with right view. And now we have to come and say, well, what possibly could right view encompass? What, what is it made of? How did the Buddha figure this right view out? And as it turns out, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, and he has a wonderful, wonderful booklet, probably less than 100 pages, on the Eightfold Path, and I have the PDF, and I can send you the link, and you can download it, and if you're really ambitious, you can change it into a Kindle format, and then stick it in your Kindle, and read it that way. But he is a, if you don't know about Bhikkhu Bodhi, let me just briefly talk about Bhikkhu Bodhi. Back in the 1970s, he was going to Claremont Divinity School, if I'm not mistaken. And for a year or two, he stayed at the International Buddhist Meditation Center, where I live and work. And so he was able to stay there for free, give a couple talks, sometimes on Sunday, maybe teach a class, and still go to school. And then after he graduated, he went and became ordained. He was ordained in Mahayana while he was living at our center, and he reordained in Sri Lanka in Theravada. Okay. There's something called the Buddhist Publication Society, and he ran that for a while. The guy's really smart. And he's written a variety of books on, the, on Buddhism and the sutras. So we have the Majjhima Nikaya, the Middle Length Sutras, the Anguttara Nikaya, the Numerical Sutras. They're divided into various baskets, if you will. And, and so he's written, he's translated and written on that. And now he's living at a Mahayana temple, I think in New York. But back in the old days, he wrote this booklet on the Eightfold Path. And uh, he came from New York, I think. And if you hear him speak, he's got this New York accent. And it's, it's, for me, it's just, it's, uh, it, it doesn't work with the Buddhist philosophy, but, it, you know, it sounds okay. So, so he's, uh, he's quite a guy. So I'm rereading his booklet and, and remembering and, and reinvestigating what the Eightfold Path was. So what he said about right view is that in the second watch of the night... Now, I spoke about this, I think, last month or the month before, about the watches of the night. And there's three watches of the night that the Buddha went through. And at the end of that night, in the morning sun, he became the Buddha, one who was awake. Uh, Until that moment, he was Siddhartha Gautama. uh, So he achieved nirvana. And the second watch of the night was when he reinvestigated and and understood karma in a very unique way. And he saw the importance of the Eightfold Path as leading to nirvana or enlightenment. So all that came out of the second watch of the night. 
So right view has two aspects. And guess what they are? The first aspect is karma. And the second aspect is understanding the Eightfold Path in an intellectual way and an intuitive way. Now, I really like that idea, and I'll explain the difference according to me. But let's start with karma. Karma in Buddhism is, like, really important. It's not the only reason stuff happens. There are a variety of reasons that come together that make things happen. But karma is really important because we have something to do with it. So as a human being, we can generate three kinds of karma. The first kind of karma is thought karma. When you think something, it has a consequence, but a very minor consequence because it's a thought. So all the evil thoughts or good thoughts that we have don't turn into much until they turn into speech karma. So speech karma has more consequence than thought karma. And then we have action karma, physical karma. And that has the most consequence. So if you have a thought like, I hate my neighbor, you don't want to let it turn into speech or action. You want to work on it while it's still inside. And you want to turn that hatred and anger into kindness and compassion. So we'll talk about that next month. That's the hard part. So now we have these three ways to generate karma as a human being. Thinking, speaking, and acting. And they all have consequences. Now the Buddha said we have skillful action and we have unskillful action. Skillful speech, unskillful speech. Skillful thoughts, unskillful thoughts. Okay, so what would a skillful thought be? It would be a thought that's rooted in kindness, generosity, and wisdom. And what would an unskillful thought be? It would be a thought rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion, which is much easier to generate than the skillful thoughts. Now, what really tripped me out when I first started to study karma was the fact that we in Buddhism do not have a divine lawgiver to define for us what is wrong and what is right and what are the consequences. Now, if anybody watched the Murdoch trial, it's hard to miss. It was on every channel. <laughs> what a terrible story that was. You know, and, and this man, whether it be innocent or guilty, it just, you know, you, you saw the pills and the intention and the lying and all those kind of things that went in to just ruin him. You know, and, and so it's, it's a story that we can all take something from. That if we want to be skillful human beings, we don't want to be like that. We need to be guarded. We need to guard our sense doors. And I'm finding it a little more difficult these days because there's so much activity out there that wants to catch our attention. If you're on 
the internet, you've got TikTok, which I don't understand at all and never watched anything. And, and then you've got Instagram and you've got Facebook and you've got all sorts of ways of stimulating the good and the bad. You know, and so the idea is to, when the sense stores are open, collecting all the information, we need to be careful what information enters us because once it's in, it never goes away. We're like elephants in that respect, you know. And lately, as I get older and older, I have more and more thoughts of when I was 17, 25, 32. And I can remember names and places. I'm thinking, what the hell's wrong with me? Why is that stuff still in there? When does that stuff go away? It doesn't go away. So my idea, when that stuff keeps arising, is I really have to give it a memorial service. Because the person that did that no longer exists in any real way. The guy that was 20 died a long, long time ago. And it's because the guy was 20 that the guy who's 30 showed up. And then the guy who's 30 did all his stuff, and then he died, and the guy that's 40 showed up. And it just keeps going and going, decade after decade. And all that stuff was in there. And then you think, but that's you. Well, it's you, but not in a realistic way. They are very edited and censored and little stories. We have, we have sort of manicured so we can think back and think we were the victim or we were the victor. But probably when you think about it with any kind of clarity, you were neither. You were just going through Tuesday and then something happened. And you made some choices, or you reacted in a certain way, or if you're lucky enough, you responded in a certain way. And, and that's what happened. And then you went into Wednesday. And then you went into Thursday. And then you went from 1989 to 1990. And then you went to 1991. And you just kept waking up, going through the day, <laughs> hoping you didn't hurt anybody too badly or make any really bad decisions. You go to sleep and you wake up the next day and all that stuff is in your head. And I don't know why it only comes out when you get old. Because when I was 20, I never thought about what I used to be. I thought about what I wanted to be, what I was going to do. But now, at my current age of 73, I have a lot more past than I do future. And maybe that's the reason that the past now is sort of coming up to remind me that because you have so little future ahead, you got to get busy. You got stuff to do and places to go and people to be. So don't wait around. Stay busy. Do all that stuff before you can't do that stuff anymore. Because then you'll have to do something else. But there'll always be something to do. And ultimately, we're going to have to figure out how to die how to let go of everything forever. And Buddhism is so good at that. Because it says, don't get attached. Don't get attached. 
So right view with this karma thing takes the place of a divine lawgiver, and we go through our life and we say, I had skillful karma because I am suffering less. I had unskillful karma because I am suffering more. So this reference point of suffering defines for us how well we're doing. And I sort of like that idea because when you come to karma and you say, karma, can you forgive me for all the unskillful things I've done? You know what? Karma doesn't have ears. It can't hear you. And if you get down on your knees and pray to karma to forgive you, it has no eyes. It can't see you. And karma is like gravity. It doesn't care one way or the other if you fall or don't. I don't know if you've fallen lately, but you know what? You can look up and blame gravity and curse gravity. And gravity doesn't care. Wow. So how do we go from unskillful to skillful? Well, Generally speaking, when you create karma, the consequence is not immediate. The consequence is not immediate. I was watching a video this morning on YouTube about, it was called Instant Karma. And it was about people driving cars and being real jerks and going out and instant karma happened to them. This one guy had this like, piece of metal and he pulled over and he was going to hit this car and the person in the car had some kind of pepper spray instant karma the guy never hit the car he just his eyes hurt so bad he went back into his own car instant karma but most of karma is not instant most there's a delay there's a delay and that's where we jump into action Okay, so now you were sort of mean to a friend or a family member and you said some things you wish you hadn't said. And now you know it's just a matter of time until there's retribution or revenge <laughs> and they're going to get you. And you say to yourself, now what can I do before that happens? Maybe I can do some good, skillful speech and action for the person I was unkind to and they'll change their mind about revenge. Okay, or maybe not even with them, but somebody else. You might want to go up to Mount Baldy and help somebody dig out of the snow. Think of all the merits you get for that if you can get up there. And that would negate some of the unskillful karma that you have created. So in a very real way, we're in charge. We're in charge because we were made a wrong choice an unskillful choice, but we also have actions and speech and thoughts we can do to prevent the consequences from occurring. Now, a quick story about Michelle. For five years, I was at Central Juvenile Hall, and, and I'd go every couple of weeks, every third week, and I'd go and give a talk, and we, I got other people to help me, and we would go into the to the school system, you know, because even if you go to Juvenile Hall, you have to go to school. So they have their own school at Juvenile Hall. 
And I, I loved this one, this one woman who was a school teacher there for years and years and years. And, and she heard the Buddhist guy was going to come to her class and give a talk. And she was a little apprehensive. And so I walk into the room and she pulls me aside. And she says to me, you know, you can't speak about God. I said, no problem. (laughs) But Michelle wanted to come with me. And I said, well, why would you want to come with me? She said, because it's a great way to get merit. And there are some things that I'm not really happy I did. And the merit that I get for going with you to juvenile hall would sort of counteract that. There was negative, you know, consequences. So she came with me, and, and she brought some apples. And we all did eating meditation together. The, the, the boys, and we would sit down, and we'd eat eating meditation mindfully, which they had never done before. So it was an interesting experience. And Michelle was right in there, and she was giving them directions and showing them how to do it. And, and she brought the apples and the whole thing. So it really worked well for her. And I'm hoping that that wonderful good karma was able to rectify some of the unskillful karma. So here we are, and we have a chance, before this stuff happens, to make a difference. You know. Now, there's a lot of ways we can do it as well, because merit is like our karma account. Okay? And, and whatever you decide to do, you could be generous, you could have an allowance to yourself, and you could say, okay, I'm going to allow myself to give away $5 a week. And I'm going to have the $5, and if I'm walking down the street and somebody says, you got any money, man? You give them a dollar. Now you only have $4 left, and then somebody else needs some money, and you give a dollar. Now you got $3 left. And at the end of the week, you may not make it to the end of the week, without money, but then you have to say to yourself, well, I, that's my allowance, and I'm not, I'm not going to go over it. I'll just wait until next week. And I have another $5 so I can go back into the world and, and create merit through generosity. Now, you can also create merit, and it won't cost you anything except time. Now, I realize as we get older, time is oftentimes more valuable than money. But the time necessary to listen to someone tell you their story. Because there's not enough people willing to listen. Got plenty of people willing to talk. <laughs> but not enough to listen. So, so that might be your, your weekly merit. is You're going to find a couple people who want to share some stories with you. And you're going to sit there and listen and seem like you're interested. And you might find that a lot of people have some really interesting stories. Now, my mother was a features editor in a small town in northern Wisconsin called Minocqua. And she would go out into the community, and she would interview people and get their stories. And then she'd write the stories in the paper, and the other people who lived in the town would have a better understanding of who they lived with. And I remember her saying on more than one occasion, everybody has a story. <laughs> and, and that kept her going for years, you know. And then there were tourists who would come in and she'd interview tourists and that kind of thing. And it was just, so as we listen to people's stories, we can either say, wow, I'm glad that didn't happen to me. 
Or we could say, wow, I wish that did happen to me. Or we could say, you know, everybody has a different kind of life. And they're all good. They're all interesting. And they all have their challenges. Nobody's life is ever always good. And generally speaking, not always bad either. Everybody has a little good and a little unskillfulness in everything they do and every day they find themselves in. So as I look at this and I think about karma, I think to myself, you know, this really gives me a chance to have a little more control over my life. So now you're in an argument, okay, and somebody's yelling at you and just cursing at you and wishes you were dead. And you're listening and you say, you know what? This kind of speech, which is unskillful speech, like having hot coals, holding a bunch of hot coals, and this person's hands are just burning from the hot coals. And so they want to give you some of their hot coals so their hands will burn a little less. And now you're practicing skillful karma. And you say, no, thank you. Have a nice day. And seem to be unaffected by all the trash this person was talking. Now, the unintended consequence to that is they get even more furious and more angry because you didn't respond in the way they thought you would. Meditation allows us to go into a variety of situations and not be moved or motivated in a negative way, but simply experience the situation and then let it go. Experience it and let it go. So karma is something we can think about every day. Karma is something we do every day anyway, because we all think all the time. Most of us speak most of the time. And a lot of times we act as well. So the Buddha came to this understanding in the second watch of the night. And then he came to the Eightfold Path and saw the importance of the noble Eightfold Path. Now, according to some forms of Buddhism, Siddhartha Gautama was the 28th Buddha. There were 27 Buddhas before him on earth. And when the last person who knew the teachings of that Buddha died, Buddhism was gone from earth until the next Buddha showed up and rediscovered, rediscovered the Eightfold Path and Nirvana. So what the Buddha did in the second watch of the night is he rediscovered the Eightfold Path and started the wheel of Dharma turning. The wheel of Dharma turning. Okay. So the right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration are the eight path factors. But right view has that second aspect as well. So we went through karma, the first aspect of right view, and now we go to the Eightfold Path, the second aspect of right view. And there's two ways to experience the Eightfold Path. The first way is what we're doing now. It's the intellectual way. It's either reading or listening to somebody talk, but it's stimulating you in an intellectual way, which may increase your curiosity 
and may give you the intention to pursue the Buddhist path because what the Buddha found out is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Now, when I was 20, I didn't get it. Of course, I found Buddhism when I turned 30. But at 20, life was just full of, of chances at happiness and joy and creativity and women. But then you get to be 70, and everything sort of shifts and changes a bit. So I didn't get the fact that life was ultimately unsatisfactory because I was sort of a happy guy. I was probably deluded because I was so happy. But you know what? That's sort of a nice place to be. If you can hang out with your delusion and it turns out to be happiness and joy, what the heck? Nobody's going to get you for that. But then stuff happens. You know, your dog dies. And you go, man, not lucky. Lucky was only alive for 12 years. Why don't they live longer? And then your first car gets into an accident. And the whole right fender is just bent and distorted. And you go, man, that was my car. I loved that car. I was so attached to that car. And now look at it. I don't like it anymore because it's, it's damaged. Yeah, yeah. And then you go to school, you know. And there's always somebody in school who's a lot smarter than you are and a few people that aren't quite as smart as you are. And if you're on the track team or the basketball team, there's always somebody with just, you know, wonderful instincts that, that have been given to them because of birth or genetics. And you're just sort of muddling through and trying to do the best you can and never really happy with the results. And you go, oh, man. And then you get your first girlfriend and your second girlfriend and your third girlfriend, and you go, what's wrong with me? Why, why can't the third girlfriend be with me a little longer? Now I've got to go find the fourth girlfriend, you know? And you go, oh, man. And it goes on and on and on. You get your first job, then you get your second job, you get your third job. You don't like your boss, you do like your boss, but then the boss leaves for a better job and you get a bad boss again. And you go, oh, man. And all the things you really wanted never seemed to be as good when you get them as you thought they would be. I don't know if you've ever found that to be the case, but for a long time, I really liked watches. I loved watches. And I don't know why, but it seems a lot of men like watches and a lot of women, not so much. And there's a channel on TV that has, I think it's called Evicta watches. And they're like the size, you know, uh, they're giant. And they're all colors and there's dials and hands and you go, wow. How can you even see what time it is with all that distraction on the face of the watch, you know? And then I settled, this is my latest watch. This is a, uh, an all-aluminum watch. Very lightweight. It has really big numbers. I can see it from across the room. And it works perfectly. And nobody's going to want to steal it. You know, it's not a Rolex. They're going to rip it off you. You know, you say, it's only $99. You want it? You can have it. I'll just get another one. But you get into these places where you just sort of get attached, 
and then you have aversion, and then you expect things to be better than they are, and then you're always disappointed, and it just goes on and on and on, and then you get to be in your 70s, and you wake up in the morning and think to yourself, this may be the best day I'm ever going to have. And you go, no, no. I said that to my doctor one time. I'm, I'm in Kaiser and I'm doing something. Um, I forget what I wanted to do or what he wanted me to do. And, and I said, you know what, doctor? This could be the best day we're ever going to have, thinking the Buddhist philosophy would just ring through the room. And he says, that is so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> So I didn't, I didn't talk about Buddhism after that. I just <laughs> let him be happy, you know. So we have disappointment. Now the, now, the Buddha found that the reason we suffer so much, the main reason is craving. It's this thirst that can't be quenched. It's this never-ending wanting more, wanting better, wanting it faster, holding on to it longer, all this stuff. And, and we just keep going through all these cycles of craving and thirst and attachment and aversion. And he saw that as being the main reason why we suffer. So when you come to Buddhism, it really is a practice religion. It's really a religion about how to live your life and not suffer. And I thought to myself, that's the religion I want to have. You know, I was an uh, agnostic for a while. I was a Lutheran for a while. And, and none of those really satisfied me. Because was, the main thing they wanted me to do was have faith. Okay? Even as an agnostic, the faith necessary to believe there's something bigger in the universe than you are but it can't be named, or at least you can't name it. So it's this sort of enigma. But Buddhism says, no, man, we got, you, you got to do something. If you want to have a better life, you may need faith to take the first step. You may need the faith to realize there's something that can change your life in a positive way. But after that first step, the second step is based on confidence because you've proven it to be true. It's self-validated for you. And I'm thinking, man, that's what I want. I want to go out and test it. I want to see if it really does work. I want to see if me speaking more skillfully, being more kind, being more accepting of the situations and the people I find myself in and with, if that really makes my life any better. And so after the, the years, I started in 1979, and after all these years, I have to say that I haven't got a clue. Did, did my practice of Buddhism make my life better, or did just living make my life better? Or did watching that TV show make my life better? Or reading that book, did that make my life better? I don't know. But then I thought to myself, why do I take vitamins every day? Because I think that vitamins are going to make me feel better about me. And somebody would say, but you know what? You really don't know, do you, if vitamins are going to make you feel better? And I said to them, 
I think they will make my life better. I think Buddhism will make my life better. And when I've taken the time to test it, it seems to be the case. And when I've taken vitamins and then stopped, I didn't feel as good as when I was taking them. And now my latest supplement has given me so much energy, I'm thinking they probably added a little cocaine to make it better. (laughs) CoQ10. CoQ10 is the supplement I'm taking now. And along with my vitamins and along with my probiotics. And it has given me a really interesting, subtle sense of well-being. A sense of well-being. It came from this little guy called a CoQ10 tablet that's the size of a horse tablet. And you really have to be careful when you swallow it because it could probably kill you if it got lodged in your esophagus. But it's just, you know, so, so will I be taking CoQ10 for the rest of my life? Probably. Why? Because I think it makes a difference. Will I be a Buddhist for the rest of my life? Probably, because I think it makes a difference. So there are a couple things when you start, you can't get out of. And that's the warning about Buddhism. Once you start on the path of Buddhism, you can't forget what you've learned along the way. You can't even stop and say, I'm not going to go any further, because that doesn't work either. You can't stop. It's like life. And you say to yourself, okay, I've done all I'm going to do. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm going to stop right now with my life. Good luck. How long is that going to last? When's the next time you're going to have to go pee? Life continues. Life continues. You can't stop. So so there's a word of warning. If you find Buddhism interesting and you start on the path of Buddhism, you may be locked in for the rest of your life. But generally speaking, if that turns out to be the case, you'll be suffering less. So now we come to this interesting part. The Buddha said life is ultimately unsatisfactory. The Buddha said one of the main reasons it's unsatisfactory is because of craving, attachment, disappointment, aversion, all those little things. Then he said, I have found the answer. And the answer is nirvana. The end of suffering, the end of karma, and the end of all future rebirths. Now, I've said this before, but that's the most profound thing. Because the Buddha said, my path teaches us how not to be born. Wow. Most people would say, my path teaches us how not to die. You'll be resurrected. You'll never die. The Buddha said the problem with life is birth. Because every time we're born... We're going to suffer, we're going to get sick, we're going to get old, and we're going to die again. And then sure enough, we're born again. According to Buddhism, not in the sense of Christianity, but in the sense of reincarnation or rebirth. Now, 
let me just clarify rebirth and reincarnation. Hindus have reincarnation. They believe that their soul will be reborn again in a different vessel. Until eventually, through countless reincarnations, that soul merges with the great soul, the mothership. Okay? Oversimplification, I know, but that's how I think. Buddhism says, not the case. Buddhism says, it's not the soul that's reborn, it's karma that's reborn. That nothing stands apart from the process of your life. Your life is not an event. Your life is a process. There's no beginning. And the only end you'll ever find to that is nirvana. Because when you achieve nirvana, your karma stops. And the karma is the one thing from this lifetime that will be reborn in the next lifetime. That's how important karma is. We work through our whole life trying to create merit and skillful karma and all that stuff. And then finally, it's time for us to die. And we look back and say, you know what? I created a lot of merit. I created a lot of good karma, a lot of skillful karma. I'm going to have a good rebirth. I'm going to be reborn in Paulus Verdes. <laughs> And hopefully that's the case. We, we won't know until we were born, you know. But hopefully that's the case. So this, this karma thing connected to the Eightfold Path and the end of suffering, the final conclusion of the Eightfold Path, is so important that Buddhist, the Buddha talked about it over and over and over again in many different ways because he had so many different people listening at different levels. He had the merchants, and he had the people who, who ran the country. He had the warriors. He had all sorts of different kinds of people with different kinds of mentality. And he needed to be able to speak to them in a way that they understood, which is one of the reasons, again, that I'll be going to Linwa Temple because they want me to speak in a way that the young people who haven't committed to the path of Buddhism yet will understand why that's a good choice and a good decision to make. The Buddha said, and this was really important, my teachings have not taken root in a country until we have some native-born people who take ordination and go out into their country and speak in the language of the people, which is their language. So I can only speak to people that speak English generally because I don't speak any other language. And I was born in Iowa. And I got ordained in Los Angeles. So I'm sort of one of those guys who's taken the teachings of the Buddha into the world in sort of a realistic, oftentimes humorous, and insightful way. And hoping people hear most of what I say. And hear a lot of the stuff that I don't say. Like, I don't talk about God. And that made that woman in Juvenile Hall very happy. She was not disappointed with my presentation. So now, here we are, and we're going to think about the Eightfold Path in two different ways. 
we're going to think about it in an intellectual way, and we're going to think about it in an intuitive way. So the intellectual way is what we're doing right now. You listen to me sort of break down the path, one, two, three, four, get that basic understanding, those concepts are in your head, you can sort of imagine or picture sometimes what I'm talking about, or in your own case, how you'll react and respond to what I'm talking about. But now we have the intuitive way. And this took me a while to understand, because I think, and generally speaking, it's, it's not basically a gender issue, but it could be, that sometimes men aren't quite as intuitive as women. A bit more intellectual, for whatever reason. I don't know if it's genetics or the school system or parents or peer groups, whatever the heck it is, that when I came to Buddhism, I was less than intuitive, you know? I was negative intuitive. And, and so I started to meditate. And the meditation changed my intuition. It allowed me to sort of get to a place that I could never remember being at. Now, the difference between intellect and intuition or knowledge and feeling, that sometimes if you're intuitive, you feel certain things that you're not able to intellectualize or speak about. But it's true to you and you know that's the case, and there's a certain knowing rather than an understanding. So I'm good at understanding sometimes, but I'm not really good at knowing sometimes, because knowing comes from the direct experience in a certain situation without an intellectual overlay, without adding a bunch of concepts to it. Okay. Now, one of the stories I really liked, I don't know if it's true or not, is when the Spanish came to the Americas and the native people, the first people were there and they would look out into the ocean and they couldn't see the big ships with the masts and the sails. Literally couldn't see them. And I thought to myself, how could that be the case? They're huge. And they're standing on the beach and they're looking at a flat ocean and they can't see the ships. And then it went on to explain that they had no word for those ships. And they could only see it when they understood what it was. So I thought I would test this out. And I would go into places and I would look at things that I didn't know what they were. Or what function they had. Or why they were even there. And I'd sort of say, I wonder what that does. How could I not know what that does? It should be obvious. But it wasn't. Because they didn't have an intellectual understanding of that thing. So it could be in the old days when I was a young fellow that I'd look underneath the hood of the car and I'd see a bunch of stuff. And I didn't know what the heck I was looking at. I'd just see stuff, you know? And I'm going, okay. Well, this is the carburetor. And this is the header, and this is the air filter. And then, and then they, you sort of figure out what they do and how to change them, and you can save money doing that. So the idea is to go into certain situations, not knowing what the situation is, but not needing to know, needing to feel. So I don't need to understand it. I just need to feel it. How does that feel? 
And that intuition, that understanding, intellectual, knowing, intuitive, that intuition is what allows us to directly experience the Eightfold Path. So we can intellectually understand how to do the Eightfold Path and what the practices might be, but we have to really do it to feel it, to intuit it. And that's what the Buddha came up with. So we've got the intellectual and the intuitive. And my meditation has allowed me to be more intuitive, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything better happens. I don't think necessarily being more intuitive will get you a better job. Sometimes you just need to say the right things at the right time or be in the right place, and you get the job. Or you have to go to school and get student loans and owe $100,000, and you get the job. You know? But if you went in to the, to the boss and said, you know, I feel I'd be a good employee. <laughs> He's going to go, so? <laughs> you know. So the intuitive allows us to really experience life in a very special way. Something that's been lost to most of us because we're so intellectual and we always have to know why stuff happens and how it could be avoided. You know, and you go, okay. So you get a big sinkhole that's 20 feet deep and swallows a few cars. Why did that happen? What can we do to prevent that from happening again? That's not intuitive. But it's necessary, so it doesn't happen again. So we can, as Ramdas would say, we can dance between the intuitive and the intellectual. We go from side to side, depending on what's most appropriate. So say you want to go on a weekend retreat and meditate for two days. Better to be intuitive, because if you're too intellectual, you're going to realize all the reasons this was a big waste of time and you shouldn't have done it in the first place. Because your back hurts, your knee hurts, the food wasn't very good, and it cost you 200 bucks. <laughs> you know? But if you're intuitive, that time off from the world might allow you to experience and feel different things that wouldn't be normally available to you in your everyday life. So that's valuable, but hard to put value on it because only you will be able to see the value, maybe, or ultimately and eventually, it will turn out to be the best thing you ever did. But the day you were doing it, that made no sense at all. So intuitive, intellectual, eightfold path, doing it, feeling it, understanding it. These are all aspects of right view. And that's important in the beginning. That's how we start. And it's the final phase of the Eightfold Path is having right view and right intention, which has a liberating factor.